Well, good evening, LCM. It's Wednesday. It's November 22nd. It's 2023. I hope it's not too disconcerting to you that we're here on the wrong night and in the wrong order of service. Sometimes there's a special joy in doing it different just because we can. Or for you English teachers, doing it differently. I wanted to begin with a recap and reflection, because that's what our Thursday services usually are, on the Underground Railroad. I thought Pastor Matthew and Pastor Wade did an amazing job. Somewhere you should have a list of scriptures. I'll tell you exactly what they should sound like. They should sound like, wow, from Deuteronomy 30, I learned that there is a cycle of chastisement between Israel and God. And every time that cycle is aimed at bringing Israel into a promised return. Then somewhere next to Isaiah 49 in your list, you should have something like, wow, in Isaiah 49, I learned that there's a specific method of return. Gentiles get to be a taxi cab service. Praise God for our Arab brothers in New York that have already started in a very natural sense being taxi cab drivers. Then somewhere around Ezekiel 36, you should have made notes about the order and the elements of salvation. That Israel actually returns to the land prior to being cleansed. Prior to having a stony heart removed. Prior to becoming a new creation. Prior to being baptized in the spirit. But it is in the land that all of those things happen. Then next in your series of notes, you should have something about Isaiah 11. And in Isaiah 11, you should have taken note that there is a clear second exodus pattern where God says something to the effect, for a second time, I will stretch out my hand and bring home sons and daughters from Assyria and from Egypt he even goes so far as to say that he will strike bodies of water so that they are dry and his people can walk over them again. Then the message moved to Psalm 106 where we learned the attitude of those who are outside the land of Israel seeing what God is doing for those being brought back to the land of Israel where we're rejoicing and glorying with the God of all creation because the object of his desire is happening. Then we learned in Psalm 124 that there is an attitude that God is looking for in Israel, one which he is cultivating, one in which he is developing that they will arrive at, where they're saying things like, blessed is the nation whose help is the Lord. Or we would have been swallowed up. We were in the snare. We couldn't have survived it had he not helped us. In other words, total dependence on the goodness and grace of the God of Israel as opposed to the IDF or your bank account or any other thing. After that, in an extraordinary turn of events, we went to Luke 9. And in Luke 9, you heard a literal conversation between the embodiment of the law, the prophets, and the living writings of God on a mountain discussing the upcoming exodus which would be brought to fulfillment in Jerusalem. 
This should have illustrated to you that there is no break between the Older and Newer Testament. That it's the same story and Jesus is what it was all pointing to and his work is not yet done. It's to be completed through the body of Messiah, which includes you goat-worshipping, pork-eating, formerly Gentiles. From Luke 9, the message began to wind down around Revelation 1. And in Revelation 1, you should have taken note that the path of fulfillment to the promises given to Israel to become a nation of priests, those promises that happened in Exodus 19, Revelation outlines the, the course that the bride walks down in the footsteps of Messiah so that she actually arrives at the nation of priests with a few mysterious graftins there with her. The message ended in Romans 15 where you learned what an acceptable offering as a Gentile is, an acceptable gift on behalf of God's people, that you were saved for a purpose, that you were saved with a debt in mind, a debt to your God and the things that he wants to commit. You owe something to Israel. Did you all learn any of those things? Yeah. Well, I hope so. Because I took five and a half minutes of an unorthodox night, old school, even brought back the pulpit, and a no-notes sermon to remind you of what you should have already been talking about every moment that you have from Sunday till now. My goal tonight is to move beyond that and share with you what I have been contemplating as a result of these kinds of messages. What has been being discussed in my house, what is being discussed with spiritual sons and physical sons every free moment since then. Would you all like to be let in on that conversation? Yeah. Our message will be called In Christos or In Christ. You all ready? Yeah. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. Somebody say first. first. And also the Greek. This is how the book of Romans begins. And I can't teach the book of Romans tonight, and I don't need to, because an anointed team in Illinois is doing that right now. I invite you to listen to those messages. They're incredible. They're also occurring on Wednesday night. One is happening right now. Did you know that it was not just salvation that is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile? Turn a page in your Bible to chapter 2 and verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew and also the Greek. It turns out that if you are God's firstborn son, you are the example to all men and all things. The first kind of example of what salvation is and the first kind of example of what discipline is. This is a service that the people of Israel perform on behalf of God before the whole world. Serving you with good examples and bad examples and we've been told in advance what the outcome is for the nation. Fast forward with me to Romans 9. What was the name of this message? In Christos, in Christ. Now, 
People treat Romans as Paul's finest theological work. And it's painful, but most of the men who say that have failed to understand it. Paul spends nine chapters to get to what could only be referred to as the magnum opus of Romans. He spends nine chapters to get you to 9, 10, and 11, where he explains the heart and the destiny of the Jewish people, the one that was designed by God and that will result in salvation for all. And can you imagine writing a letter, and for nine chapters, you've been banging away at every letter, it's inspired, it's been encouraging, it's been beautiful, and then you open chapter 9 with these words. I am speaking the truth in Christ, in Christos. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Ask yourself, what could compel a man who has already written eight chapters to get to a ninth chapter and have to make um, a declarative statement like that? I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. The Holy Spirit bears me witness. Does that tell you that what is coming next could be hard to accept? If you didn't think it was hard to accept, then all you need to do is look at the theological framework that's been developed over the last 2,000 years, and they treat Paul as if he were lying. I speak the truth in Christ. This is something of a favorite statement for the apostle. If you survey the Pauline epistles in 80, well, yeah, 84 times in 82 verses, Paul says, in Christ. It's such a strange thing to say. It's such a strange thing to say that I, I hate to put it into modern equivalency because it sounds weird, especially with our alphabet audience listening. If I said, hey, I speak the truth in Wade, I'm not lying. You would look at me as funny as you're looking at me now, and Peyton would be the only one that had actually stuck his hand into Wade's leg this week. What do you mean in Wade? If I told you that every blessing is found in Wade... That's, that's such a strange thing to say, and you've grown up with it in church all of your life, so it doesn't strike you as strange. What does it mean to say, I speak the truth in Christ? Or the other 83 times that he declares something in Christ? Well, I'm not going to pull out lexicons tonight. There are no slides. There are no clever homiletics. I wanted to talk to you about what has been striking me this week. To be in Christ is not a theological statement of something that happened to me when I was eight or nine years old. It was not even a moment in 1993 where he appeared to me. It was not when he knocked me down with his voice. To be in Christ has to mean that I'm in conjunction with him in all things. That his heart is my heart. That his mind is my mind. That my objectives are his objectives so that it could be said I am operating within him and he within me. This was a terribly convicting thought. I spoke with Judah about it. I spoke with Gabriel about it. We spent a bunch of the day today discussing as we rode around on motorcycles, as we went to eat, as we went to study the word, as we discussed the various Odd sales encounters that Gabe has had this week. How much of my day is not actually in Christ? 
how many of my thoughts are not actually in Christ. Now, mind you, I'm not saying that they're overtly wicked. I'm not saying that they're not even noble or, or what a man would call good. I'm telling you that I spent from Sunday till now examining how much of me on an hourly basis could actually be said to be in Christ. In his walk, in his experiences, in his love, in his objectives, in his kind of patience, in his endurance, in his love of the Father. How many of the things that I do in a day are derived from being in Christ. Are you feeling that at all yet, or is it just me? I was happy to say that I could identify some things that were in Christ. But I think our desire ought to be that all things are in Christ. Can you say that we have some transformation yet to be had? Can you say that we are saved, but not quite as saved as we would like to be? That we're somewhere in process, but we have more to go. I long for the day when I am completely found in Christ. Well, I think I probably ought to just keep reading here. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish, somebody say could. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Those are the words that are immediately following him, saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. You wouldn't think you'd have to say that after eight chapters, but he's been working to get to this point. He's been working to explain a deeper thing, something that the Bible considers mysterious and that you could misunderstand as a lie. How many times have we read over Romans 9, 1 through 5, and it's just never hit us with the importance that Paul is writing it? Many times. Paul said that he could wish. He didn't say that he did. He said he could wish. The way that this is usually taken is if I'm an American, I have such a patriotic feeling for America, such a kindred spirit for those that have shared some of the same experiences, mostly those who look like me. And that is what is driving this. But that's not how Paul began this statement. He began this statement by saying, in Christ. Something about Paul's mind, heart, actions, everything about him was being found in Christ, and it produced in him a desire that could wish to be cut off for his people. Does you being in Christ produce that kind of thought? One Gentile in the room. Let's go to Exodus 33. I'm going to try to keep a pace tonight. I could care less whether this makes the top 10 sermons 
or how well crafted somebody thinks it is. I've made no effort for those things. I simply want you to wrestle with what I've been wrestling with. In Exodus 32, man, let's just take verse 32 so I can keep up with that ferocious clock. The golden calf incident has occurred. Moses and God are having a conversation. And in verse 32, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. It sounds like Paul in Romans 9 is reflecting on a statement and an attitude that Moses had, doesn't it? The people are in great error. And both men standing in the gap, interceding for the nation, say, hey, for, forgive, but, but I'm willing to be blot out. Or I could wish that I was blot out. Again, it sounds like Moses just really, really loves the Jewish people. Except he's kind of angry with his brothers yeah. at this moment. And I know that Paul really, really loved the Jewish people, but was it because of the beatings he was receiving? Or was it because of the scourgings he was getting? Or was it because of the persecution in the synagogues that he was getting? What was it? I want to submit to you that there's something far deeper going on in this. That when you're in Christ, when you're in the Father, you start to care about what he cares about, and it's irrespective of how they have treated you. In fact... Would you like to know what is not written in Exodus that Moses and God are discussing? Turn to the book of Deuteronomy because thankfully there's a second retelling of this event. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, somebody say in Christ when you get there. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, let's begin in verse 26. This is the same event except Moses is now telling the people what happened. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able, because the Lord was not able, to bring them into the land that he promised them. And because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. I want to submit to you that it was not a genetic love for someone who looked like another person. It wasn't two brothers hanging out, whether they be white or black or Vietnamese. It was out of a love for what God said he wanted to inherit. It was out of a love and a respect for God's name that Moses would rather personally be blotted out in the name of God upheld than for Moses to be saved but God be defamed. 
He wanted God to be true and every man a liar. And I want to tell you that that is a better view of Paul's attitude in Romans 9. And it's why he had to say, I'm speaking in Christ and I'm not lying. Because it turns out that the very Christ himself cared so much about his father that he was willing to be killed by his Jewish brothers to honor his father's name. Go with me for a minute to John 14. Is anybody tracking with me so far? Is it disconcerting to you that I'm not reading from a script? Good, because it's liberating for me. In Christ, in John 40, no, there is no John 40, John 14, verse 29. And now, I have told you before it takes place. I love that Jesus can tell us things before they take place. I love that the law tells you things before it takes place. I love that the prophets tell you things before it takes place. It is your job to have listened so that you can believe that it will take place. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Now, I learned that in a little different translation. But the world will learn that I love the Father and have done exactly as he has commanded me. Is how I learned it. What Moses and Paul and Jesus have in common in this scenario is they love the Father so much that it doesn't matter what it means for them. Even if they experience death, or a loss of salvation, or a blotting out, they want God's objective and God's desire to be completed. In other words, their salvation was about what God wanted and not what they thought they should be rewarded with. Which begs the question, what does God want? Well, Romans 9 through Romans 11 tell you that. Let's go to Romans 11 for a second. Is it okay if we flip around in our Bibles? You know how this goes. Even if it's not, it's exactly what I'm going to ask you to do. Romans 11, beginning in verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. How many of you are Gentiles? How many of you are Gentiles? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. Why would Paul want that? Because it's what God wanted. And thus to save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Romans 9 through 11 begin to lay out for us some beautiful things about what God is going to identify through Paul as a mystery. That somehow or another, the temporary stumbling and rejection of Israel has turned out to mean life for you Gentiles. 
But the reason that he has brought life to you Gentiles is to serve his purpose in saving them. In fact, why don't we just slide our fingers down to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. That's never happened. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. What we're about to discuss is mysterious. But it's not the mysterious grafting in of the Gentiles. It's the mystery of Israel's salvation. It may not fit your soteriology. It may not fit the way that you think it should be done. It is mysterious, but it is declared and it is the desire of God. And our role, you learn Sunday, is to bear this mystery upon our shoulders, whether it is understood by our Jewish brethren or not. It is the reason that Gentiles came into the body of Christ. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The desire of God is to present himself through Messiah to Israel. God will have his desire. The desire of God is to use you to provoke and arouse envy. To be kings and queens that carry sons and daughters on your own shoulders as God's servants into their destiny. These thoughts came out of being in union with Christ, not in genetic union with people that looked like him. Although Christ is, was, and always will be a Jew. It is the desire of the Father that is at stake. It is the objective of the Father that is at stake. And Paul begins to explain himself a little bit here. But after eight chapters, he gets to a place in the ninth where he's saying, I'm speaking the truth in connection, in junction, in bond with Christ. I'm not lying. The Holy Spirit is testifying to this. And he had to say that to believers then. How much more now? Then in 9, 10, and 11, and 10, he says, my desire is that they be saved. Now I'm reading to you from 11. In 9, 10, and 11, he shows you the mystery of Gentiles being used. A full number of Gentiles being used to help bring about the salvation of Israel. And then in 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. We were told to love our enemies. We were told to forgive our enemies. I personally have not really experienced the animosity of Jewish people. I've experienced the animosity of a lot of people. But not often the Jewish people. A couple thousand years of persecution has made it so that Jews are often skeptical. 
They'll often watch and wait to see what you do and not listen as much to what you say. They are incredibly discerning people, and they have learned to see through Christian BS of bleeding of sheep. But it's not very often that your life is in mortal danger from a Jew these days. You have it easier now, not not harder. For election's sake, because of the design of God, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Who is that in reference to? The gifts and call of God for Israel are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, somebody say, I've received mercy. They also may now receive mercy. From whom? Both you and God. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I want you to pay careful attention to verse 33. Oh! Do that for me, Nick. Oh! Somebody else. I don't know how you would translate that. I don't know how they knew how to translate this. It's a heartfelt expression, a cry, a visceral vocalization that expresses emotion. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God considered this a mystery. That this would be how he would save his nation. And you learned about it last week. And in the middle, now we are in the 11th chapter, almost the 12th. Paul breaks into what's called a doxology. Now, I used to live and work and spend time around a spiritual father named Raja. And Raja sometimes would be excited while we were talking about Jesus. And he would simply break into song. But have you ever been writing a letter and in the 11th chapter of your letter you have said something that so excites you that you are so moved in your spirit that you're so in Christ and Christ so in you that you break out in praise to God that is a song? Why do these chapters not produce that in us? Because for you it's a theological intrigue. For you it's a position to support to defend or to attack and criticize. He broke in to song over the thought that God's objective of saving all of Israel and using Gentiles to help in the process. He broke into spiritual jubilation and song as he wrote. Is that what this thought produces in us? Of course, he started this by saying he was in Christ, in the attitude of Christ, in the mind of Christ, in the spirit of Christ, in the desire of Christ, in the objective of Christ. What conclusion could I come to this week other than all of my efforts to be in Christ and I'm still not very much in him? Because I don't often 
have these kinds of emotions over the same kinds of subjects. Now, when I found out I was going to Sushi Masa today, I wanted to break into song. When I hear that there's a new season of a clean Netflix show that's come out, I could break into song. When I hear that Abby or Jennifer has come from a long distance, I could break into a little dance. See, I'm excited about things I want to be excited about. Our goal is to be in Christ. Paul was moved of the spirit of Christ to these things. It is Jesus was killed by the Jewish nation for the Jewish nation. He is the Passover lamb of the Jewish nation to redeem the Jewish nation. That has always been his goal, but it's far from our goal. We've got to get into Christ, friends. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be the glory forever. Amen. Good thing that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are over. I mean, it's a good thing Paul put those chapter breaks in his letter. It's a good thing that he subdivided this so that you would not connect his jubilant joy with this mystery of Israel being saved with the very practical thing that he says next. It's a good thing that Paul put those pericopes in his letter to make sure that you didn't connect your role, Gentile. Would you like to know your role? Well, then imagine that there are no numbers in your Bible, that there are no words in your Bible put by a publisher, and then you would hear, I appeal to you, therefore... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's almost like the Christ gave his body for the salvation of Israel. It is almost like the apostles and all the way back to the founder of the nation, Moses, were willing to be cut off themselves for the salvation of Israel. Why? Because they loved everything about every Jew they ever met. No! Because they cared about what God cared about. And after laying out his, his magnum opus, He says, therefore, you guys lay down your bodies in view of the mercy that you have received. How have we missed that for so long? How can it be a family scripture and we haven't gotten that out of it for so long? Because we're not as in Christ as we think we are. It's not my desire to beat upon us. I am going to preach for maybe 10, 15 more minutes. It's what I've been wrestling with this week. So how in Christ are we is kind of the question. Well, man, I had that Pentecostal experience. I can speak in tongues. I can prophesy. That's awesome. I'm really excited for you and excited for me. Those are are good things. It's a good thing Pentecost has happened. Who's glad that Pentecost has happened? Who loves that we have Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost has happened? Yeah, let's turn to uh, let's turn to Joel two. Boys, you see why I didn't want notes? I'm already having to trim scriptures out of this. When you have notes, you get committed to the notes you made. 
That's a problem. Somebody say in Christ. All I got to do is find Joel. Joel's after Hosea, right? Preaching with the computers made me lazy. Joel 2. Let's pick up in verse 28 because on the day of Pentecost, I mean the Pentecost you're all so happy of has already happened, this passage was quoted. 228. And it shall come to pass afterward. Hmm. After what, I wonder? Well, you'll have to review Joel 1 and 2 to figure that out. But I want to tell you it resembles Jacob's trouble. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. The apostles saw the spirit being poured out. And they said this is in fulfillment of what Joel said. He's not drunk. They're not drunk. This is what Joel said. But it's not all Joel said. And in the Bible, often a fulfillment is credited to the beginning of something, not its completion. We're beginning to see it fulfilled might be a dynamic translation. We're seeing something that that Joel did point to, but there will be a greater fulfillment of it coming. So many prophecies are like that in the Bible, and I'd love to go through it, but it's Wednesday night, and we don't have time. Instead, I want to point to the actual context of Pentecost. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. I've been asking people all week, hey, what do you think that is? I heard some of the most ingenious answers. They were all wrong, but I did hear them. Turn on your news and tell me, if you see on the TV, blood and fire and columns of smoke, are we talking about an ecstatic spiritual experience or did war just happen? The actual context for Pentecost is a war-torn people, a people who are called to be holy, but their power has actually been broken, a people that are desperate to be refreshed from heaven, of people who have been put in a position where their own strength cannot save them. I wonder how Pentecostal your experience actually was. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Contrast that with the cheap charlatan version that we hear constantly. I know Romans quotes this. I know it's in the 10th chapter. I know you've been told everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's true. But what are the circumstances that they're calling on him in? Utter brokenness. Absolute destitute status. I've tried to save myself and I can't. I am in physical, spiritual peril. Is that how you called on the Lord? Is that how you got filled with the Holy Ghost? Or did nine men stand around you and beg you to utter something in a language that you haven't known? Is that how you got saved? Were you a captive? Not in the metaphorical sense. Because the metaphor ends the moment you stop thinking about it. 
Were you in a dungeon? Were you being brutalized? Was all hope stolen from you? It's amazing how many people that actually have radical salvation experiences come from a place that was either near suicidal or they felt in every way as if life was over. It turns out that the first kind of salvation for the world, first salvation for the Jew, is actually a radical salvation. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. Somebody say escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. If you haven't gotten this, the actual fulfillment of Pentecost hasn't happened. But it happens after a time of distress. A time of distress unparalleled from the beginning of the world. And the mystery of God is that in that unparalleled distress of his people, there is another people who have also received mercy, and they reflect God's desires to the nation. They reflect God's objectives to the nation. In fact, they are so in Christ that they're actually walking like Christ, presenting their bodies as living sacrifices with one goal, the hope that the nation would be baptized in God's Holy Spirit, that those who had no hope would receive an outpouring of His Spirit. I promised this would be a 45-minute message. No, I'm going to hold to it, because there's Sunday as well. In Ezekiel 36, you found out that there was an order. They come back, then they're beginning to be cleansed, and in that cleansing, old stones are removed out of their heart, they're given a new heart, and there's a regenerative work within the nation. And then, he says, I will put my spirit in you. I wonder how much of that work's actually been done in us. I think that we've got some problems and we're not as in Christ as we think we are. Because we don't have his objectives. We don't have his desires. We are not burning with the kind of jubilation that breaks into song at the thought of saving the one nation on earth that he said he would save. We're not so agonized over their situation that we could wish that we be blotted out that God's name would be upheld. I don't wish for anybody to be blotted out. Jesus already did that. He received a curse already for a nation. That's why Paul said he could wish. It wouldn't have helped. The only thing that Paul could do that would help was minister among people like us and teach us our job. I feel as if I need to do Zechariah 12.10 quickly. I hope I can do this. I'm going to. Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I would love to keep reading. But we are out of time. Peyton, I would like you guys to begin to make your way up here. And I want to do this with you in our remaining few minutes. I want to set the stage for what we're asking for when we worship. How in Christ are we? 
Are we so in Christ? Are we so baptized in water in him, so baptized into his body, so baptized in his spirit that his actual desires, methods, actions, manners, way of life towards his people are showing up in us? Well, if they're not, and that is who salvation is first for, then how are all of those things showing up for everybody else as well? They're not. It's time for us to actually get into Christ. It's time for us to ask him to show us what his walk in us actually looks like. It's time for us to say, I want to walk in the experiences that you have actually destined for me. It's time for us to be so in him that we love what he loves. He had a habit of loving the unlovable. Didn't he? Look at you. Yeah. How could you think it's mysterious that he could do it for a whole nation when he did it for you? I want his objectives. You guys are a GPS generation. If you make a wrong turn, it's rerouting you right away. Some of us grew up having to look for familiar landmarks. And when you didn't see the familiar landmarks, you could only go so far before you knew you had to turn around, you had missed something, you had veered off course, you had to go check the map. I'm asking you during worship to check your spiritual map. Don't tell me you're in Christ if you don't love what he loves, care about what he cares about, and want to burst into song at the thought that his objectives are achieved. Ask him to put in you patience, to teach you endurance, most of all, that you would love and reverence his father the way that he did, which results in caring about what his father said would be done. That is my reflection on Sunday's message. Would you please stand to your feet? In Christos. I know you, and I believe that you have genuine salvation, but it's not anywhere near over, and you're not as in Christ as you can be. I believe that your baptismal experience for most of you was genuine, but you haven't left death and entered life quite as much as that water symbolized. I believe that the Spirit of God lives in you and is evidenced in his gifts spread abroad but you can't be as gifted or as full of his spirit as we would like to be if we are not so in Christ that Christ's desires and objectives are flowing out of us you were a mysterious inclusion and the mystery still to be re revealed or resolved is your role and watching and being a part of God saving his nation. Stretch your hands towards heaven. Father, may it be upon our shoulders. May your spirit compel us to be in the places where you will need us. Lord, may your word and your spirit cause us to lay down our lives for your actual objective. Lord, we're asking here, we're asking now, Lord, for a renewal. We've gotten off course 
and we've been fighting to be on course. Help us, Lord God, do what we don't know how to do and develop your desires within us. Lord, place us in you. Fill us with you. May we be one even as you and the Son are one. Help us here. Baptize us afresh in the genuine Spirit of Christ. Lord, fill us again with the Spirit of Christ. Judah's supposed to close, but I asked for a little bit of his time, so I'll be respectful of it. What a word. What a message. Hallelujah. The conviction that just came out of this is incredible. And there's something we talked about today that didn't quite make it in there, and I couldn't leave it out. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 11:18. We're going to jump straight into Scripture here. And as usual, I'm going to create a mess and then my older brother's going to clean it up. You shall therefore lay these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Next verse. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, when you are walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Church, I'm going to tell you something. We don't understand this verse because we are spoiled and fat. We are milk fat and we have so much overwhelming teaching, so much access to the scripture. It's on your phone. It's sitting on your back dash that we don't understand this. But if there was one Torah scroll in your village and the opportunity to hear the word would happen only when someone could read it to you, then would you let it go for the next meal that you needed to eat or the next task that you had to do? How would you keep it on your heart and on your mind? You would talk about it. You would discuss it. You wouldn't let it go. If I forgot one word, but he didn't, we could keep the truth of the scripture together. How do we do this? We need to get off of our milk fatness and treat this with the specialness that it actually deserves. Don't let this leave. Bind it to you by discussing it. Amen. Amen. Saints, we're about to close. Uh, With this in mind, though, let's throw Psalm 45, verse 7 up on the screen. While you're thinking about this, I want to remind you that Psalm 45 is both a wedding song and a messianic psalm. But it begins in verse 1, stating that this is the most noble of all themes. Entire Psalm is about a man who has so represented God as to be pleasing to him in every way. Since you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Saints, it's not within our purview to talk about what it actually means for Hebrews 12, 2 to say that joy was set before Jesus on the cross. Or what it means for Paul to say in Colossians 1, 24, I'm filling up suffering that is lacking. And in light of what you just heard from Deuteronomy, I want to suggest our path forward. Jesus is both the word of God, tabernacled and made flesh. And he is also the righteous king that does not judge by what his eyes see, but the spirit of holiness that is him and dwells in his body. This church is learning to take the teaching that we are receiving, but more than just be able to repeat it, learn to actually reflect the desires of our Father. 
to love what he loves, to hate that which he hates. As we continue increasingly to line up with what he desires, you're going to find a supernatural anointing of joy that is found in laying your life down as he did. Saints, we've had so many sermons on it. When it says that he's anointed with joy, this is not saying that this man is talented. He's good at being joyful as in he has just a natural gifting. Saying that he's been so smeared with the spirit as to be covered from head to toe in the presence of God. And he radiates joy as he desires what his father desires. Look, in the days ahead, we're going to have to cultivate a spiritual hunger for what God desires. We're going to have to cultivate a hunger for the very word of God that is what Jesus has tabernacled as. And through that process, we are going to learn to so deeply love the things that the Father does as to be a people who are anointed to be Christ to those that are around us. That's what it means to actually be a Christian, a Christian. We live in a day with semantic drift and people don't like the history of what is associated and been done in the name of Christians. Now would be a good time to remind the world of what it actually means to be a man who is like Christ. Raise your hands together and we're going to pray. Father, we thank you both for the teaching that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for the powerful moving of your spirit that brings us to a place of conviction and a desire for action. Lord, so before you as a people, Lord, we pray right here and right now tonight that you would begin to transform our desires. Lord, that we go beyond an intellect and move into a hunger for the things that you have longed for for thousands and thousands of years. Lord, that you would cause us to hate all that is deviant from it. Lord, that we would lay our very lives down by clinging to your word, being led by your spirit to see your righteousness revealed among your people. Let your spirit begin to transform us in greater ways today. Lord, we want a greater desire of that Pentecost moment. Lord, that we might be filled again, filled again. Lord, not just to see the Spirit move, but to be the moving of the Spirit in the day and age that we live in. In the name of Jesus, we pray as a people and say amen and hallelujah to God.